Well, good morning, Atamari, BBC Fano. It's a packed house this morning. It's a packed house. Uh, there are people looking for seats, so uh, if you see someone wandering, welcome them in. For those that are in our chapel in the overflow already, uh, bless you, aroha mai. We uh, we see you. We see you. Uh, it's my pleasure to be taking the next step in our story of Joseph. And uh, we've titled the series Courage to Change um, because there are some big moments in Old Testament stories that we need to wrestle with well. And Joshua's story have all of these kind of facets to it that, uh, that can provoke and, and scare us and a whole bunch of different things. And I think it's been great how, you know, the last couple of weeks we've had Monica and Craig sort of take some of those stories and unpack the felt human experience. See, it's quite easy to see something like the Old Testament as a bit of an allegory. You know, it's like a story that didn't really happen. But actually in the, in the very heart of the understanding of biblical scripture as a whole, God is working in and through real stories, real people. And uh, last week, I just enjoyed Monica's talking about the seemingly insurmountable Jericho-like walls that stand between us and the destiny that God has for his faithful people. And those insurmountable walls, one of those insurmountable walls is something that uh, I'm going to jump into today as we hit chapter 7. If you're familiar with the Joshua story, this is one that makes you uncomfortable, makes you clench a little bit as you you read it. Uh, For good reason, because we're going to be talking about sin. And uh, I know that makes some people feel a little bit uncomfortable, but strapping people, we're getting there. Um, We read at the end of chapter six, where Monica left off, that the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout the whole land. And so many times in the Old Testament, when we're reading these stories, there is this moment where God's so pleased with everyone and God's like, yeah, high five. And they're celebrating a win. And the very next verse, there is a defeat because there's a short step between great victory and great defeat. And, uh, you know, we read in verse one of chapter seven, but the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. There is this moment of just complete change. And that's, that's where we're gonna go today. But as we read the Old Testament, it's really important for us to, I guess, dig into a little bit of the pattern that's there, right? Because there's, there's so many little facets to these stories that um, I, I get a little bit cynical about. I get cynical about the people of God. Anyone else get cynical about the people of God? Because they are dumb. <laughs> they're stupid. They are arrogant. They, they're ungrateful. They moan about everything. God literally drops food from the sky and they moan about it. God literally opens up a sea, stops the Jordan River, a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day, and they are still ungrateful. They are still making an absolute mess of it. And then they get to, they get to Jericho and the orchestra, the horn section blow and the choir yells and walls fall down. Still, they don't believe God is faithful to things because we get to chapter seven in this. I know that, you know, if I was, if I was Bob the stonemason in Jericho 
And all the people are turning to me as the place is burning down going, nice job, Bob. It's just a joke, come on. It's, just, it's Joshua, you know, like there are some things in there that we need to unpack a little bit. And the reason why I share that is, all joking aside, Joshua's plight, the people of God's plight uh, as, as, as leader and as Israel, and as they walk as people, is unsettlingly connected or paralleled to our Christian experience today as we know it. And we don't like to think that way, but we should. It's important for us to grasp. And as we grasp these uncomfortable but stirring stories from the First Testament, we have to do, so, uh, we have to do some work to, to understand that that world then and this world now are a little bit different. How God uniquely engaged with His people there and then is different to the way he engages with people here and now. But hear me well, God's character, his personality and his nature has never changed from Genesis to Revelation. Okay? Holding those two things in tension is really important as you read some of these kind of harrowing and scary stories. And before we jump into that text today, I, wanna, I just want to refresh your memory on a couple of key words that help us to make sense of the Old Testament. Okay, and those two words are covenant and coveting. Okay, covenant and coveting. So, covenant is first and foremost God's initiative, a contract as such between humanity and God. God's relationship between us and Him throughout that first part of the scriptures is based under covenant. Yes, we are still under some other covenants, but actually right here, it makes sense for us to know that this was the relationship. Jesus had not come in the flesh yet. He had been prophesied about. He is being spoken of as future tense. But here in this moment, covenant ruled God's people. And it's His gracious undertaking God's gracious undertaking to enter into that mutual committed relationship with the people of Israel for the benefit and blessing of humankind. He created this relationship between the holiest of holies and us for our blessing, for our flourishing, for our good. But we sometimes don't get that. Yes, there are a number of covenants that God makes and some of you have probably studied these. There's covenants he made with Abraham and Noah and Adam and Moses and David. And some of those are still very real for us today. But there was a mutually intended, okay, hear this well. There was a mutually intended benefit for humanity, for the community as a whole. We gave, he gave us these covenants for us to flourish under as a people, not just a person. And when we read the Old Testament historical books that run from Joshua to Esther, they chronicle the success and the failure of the people of Israel's obedience within that covenant relationship. Okay, How have they become the people that God hoped they would be under the law and under this covenant? how God interacted with his people and governed them and shaped them through that obedience to the law and to the covenant. And as God led them through 
the patriarchs and the leaders of their time, covenant was the basis of their relationship with God. Everything revolved around this. That should help you make sense of these stories. See, our problem is we sit in a modern context where it's very me-focused, very individualistic. We've created faith to be something that is all about me and not all about we. And that's, that's, a, that's a problem we're going to have to try and shift together as God's covenant community. We read in Joshua today something that would seem unfair. It seems unjust if we only see it through New Testament glazed eyes and our modern individualistic worldview. They bump into the Bible's full across the Bible. Okay, I'm talking about Genesis to Revelation. It's got a corporate worldview that the people of God, all of us together, make up His people, all right? We've got to hold on to that. And so our individualistic mindset says, I benefit or suffer for what I do or do not do. We think that we're exempt from the benefits or deficits of what others do. And so it would be unjust for someone to inflict their choices upon me or for someone else's choices to affect me. But we live in a world where that's happening every day, are we not? In the Bible's world, however, whole groups, families, communities, they benefit or suffer because of the actions of an individual and no one reckons that unjust because they're a part of us. That contrast um, is, is important because the contrast of these two perspectives is crucial to our reading. The God of covenant acts in keeping with covenant. And secondly, is this idea of covetine or covetousness, okay? Covenant, contract, covetine, part of the contract that we enter into with God. It's the 10th commandment and it was a law essentially given for us to hold on to that sanctity of covenant relationship with God, both then and now, okay? Coveting or covetousness is best described by our inordinate desire for something we do not have, okay? That's, the, that's at the very heart of covetousness, okay? We uh, desire something that rightfully belongs to another, Again, this is the thing that God is shaping the story around. Marketers and producers, they leverage this very factor. They want us to know how bad our life will be without something, okay? That's a little form of understanding, building covetousness in others so that they desire and chase after those things. And so let's turn our reading to Joshua. And I wanna pick up just a verse in chapter six That'll help us understand chapter seven. So verse 17 to 19, read like this in chapter six. The city and all that is in it, he's talking about Jericho. You're about to go and uh, take Jericho. Um, All that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. But verse 18 says, um, is it up there? Yep, okay. But verse 18 says, keep away from the devoted things 
so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. It's pretty clear to me. Pretty clear to anyone else? Pretty clear. Otherwise, you will make the camp, Israel, the people, God's people, liable for the destru- uh, to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into the treasury. Must go into the treasury, not into your pocket. God through Joshua was pretty clear about what you should and should not do. We don't like that. We don't like being direct. I know a number of cultures like to talk around a subject, okay? And you've got to try and catch the wind of what they're trying to say. I'm an ESTJ. I have empathy at number 34 if you're a strength finders, okay? Just tell me like it is. (laughs) That's what I love about the Old Testament. It says it like it is. And then verse uh, chapter seven, it says, but the Israelites, see, he didn't say a person. He said the Israelites, okay? They were unfaithful in regard to devoted things. Achan, son of Kami and son of Zimri, probably one of the worst kings of Judah, um, the son of Zerah and the tribe of Judah, which Jesus' lineage comes from, took some of them. And so the Lord's anger burned against Israel. This is where I get frustrated with the people of God. <laughs> okay? This is why I say, they're so dumb. It's so obvious. There is, there is this clarity that comes around this. It's interesting here to note that when God's anger burned, he lifted his hand of blessing. He didn't send fire from heaven to consume them. He just went like this, woo. If you want to step into that, I've got to step away. I am holy. And if I am to be faithful to the covenant that I've set, that you and I have agreed to, I need to step back from that. We've got to to see it for what it is. He was not present in their battle. And he actually left Israel to their sin because he couldn't be there among it. In his holiness, God makes his blessing absent from sin. He can't be present present to covenant sin. God will never bless sin. The sin became its own punishment in some ways. And oblivious to the sin, there is this seeming security. Uh, what did I get up to? Chip seven, you were up to there. Reading, no, go back, my bad. Um, oblivious to the sin, and in their seeming security of God's blessing, Israel sent two to 3,000 people. There's a kind of arrogance that's built up inside them. You know, we've taken down Jericho. We've, we've monstered our way into the promised land. God has promised us this thing. And Israel sent these men to the small settlement of Ai and they are walloped. They are chased with their tail between their legs. And it says 36 innocent men were killed. 36 innocent people 
were killed. And I suspect that probably Achan was a part of that party that went out. Okay? He wanted to test one of these things that were going on for him. And at the heart, it says this, at, their heart, at this, their hearts of the people, they melted in fear and became like water. And Joshua tears his clothes and he, he throws dust on his head, which is pretty typical practice for someone who's in mourning in that space and time just to show the, the absolute pain that they're in. And then proceeds to have a long whinge to God. God, you shouldn't have brought us out across the Jordan. If only we had defeated them. The Canaanites will wipe out your name from earth. Blah, blah, blah. People of God are dumb. They sin and they they break covenant with God. And then they whinge. And the reason why I get annoyed is because he is one of only two people, Joshua and Caleb were one of only two people who were exited out of Egypt and are now seeing the promised land. He's seen 50 years of God's faithfulness, God's goodness, the consistency of his character and his nature. He knows all about it, but here he is, whinging, oh Lord, what can I do? And then it says in verse 10, and I... I read this with with a tone that I hope you will understand. This is what I think God's tone would have been to Joshua. The Lord said to Joshua, stand up, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things they have stolen from God. They have lied. They've put them with their own possessions. I love that. And then it says, that is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and they run because they've been made liable for destruction. Remember chapter six. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Same words in two different passages. And here's what I want to pause briefly and and state very clearly. God can't stand sin. I think in our, our modern understanding, we've tried to allow sin to become something that is palatable to God. From Genesis to Revelation, He is consistent about His view of sin, of breaking covenant, of doing that which you should not Sin will always be the defeat of God's people if we allow it to. And God is out to destroy sin among his people. And when the sin of disobedience came, God in his holiness had to step back. I'm not blessing or supporting this. And the natural consequences of that sin metastasized. And I use that word very... uh, Importantly, because it connects to what I think sin looks like. Sin looks like cancer. I want you to hear that well. There are some people in this room dealing with that at the moment. But sin looks like cancer. I say that because um, you've probably heard me use this analogy before. I talked to a friend of mine who's a top surgeon. He's a top surgeon in Auckland. And 
He's had a 30-year career in surgery. 80% of what he does is cut out cancer. 80%. He probably didn't go into surgery thinking that would be the thing that he spent most of his time doing. And let me reassure you, he finds that incredibly, an incredible privilege to be saving people's lives. But 80% of what he does is cut out cancer. And those who have experienced that kind of horrendous and harrowing procedure are working through a cancer diagnosis, understand that often this is the most effective treatments to cut it out and cut out what you can. And then it's not just that they cut away the cancer, they, they cut away some of the healthy stuff around it as well. And when that has happened, then they go in with chemotherapy and radiation. Why? Because if they don't put it to death, it will put them to death. See, sin like cancer will kill all it touches if it's not cut out. We don't believe that. Some of you are experiencing that in your own life. If you think the God of the New Testament is is any less direct, like we're serving two different gods from Genesis to the Psalms and onwards, if you think he's any less direct, you read in chapter five of... (laughs) This is beautiful. In chapter five of Matthew, better to enter heaven with one less eye, better to enter heaven with one less hand than your whole body to enter hell. It's clear. We need to take sin seriously because God can't stand it. And see, for God to be dependably good, For him to be merciful, consistently kind, he must also be just and holy. And we kind of don't like that from the Old Testament, do we? It's an important aspect of our faith journey to wrestle with. And so we go back to our story um, in a minute. There is this moment in verse 13, which I'll read to you where Achan has an opportunity here. And it says in verse 13, go consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. Consecration is something they've already done, okay? Go back to Joshua 3, before they cross the Jordan and enter the promised land, he says, go away and take on all of those ritual purification rites, okay? Go and cleanse yourself. Go and confess. Go and create burn offerings. There is this whole world around consecration, which we don't understand. But in that moment, this is what the Lord says. For tomorrow, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. There are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. Present yourselves tribe by tribe, he goes on to say. You see, the consecration ritual should have given alarm bells to Achan. This is the moment that he should have actually come forward, okay, in the story. God gave him two chances to come forward, okay? This is, this is the first one. This is the moment that the first chance to come clean was rejected. He would have known that God had spoken to Jacob. He would have known what was coming. He knows what devoted things are, but still he goes through the consecration ritual as if God couldn't see what he'd done. 
And I love John Wesley's example of this. This is what we call conscious sin. He says, conscious sin is the willful transgressions of the known will of God. We understand the will of God. And when we transgress against those things and we wonder why life isn't going quite the way we think it should, go back and read about why. (laughs) Because God can't stand sin. It's a beautiful picture. I'm pretty sure there are lots, when the lots were being cast, uh, the circle was getting smaller, okay? And the family was drawn out of Judah. Whoa. He knew what was coming. He knew what was coming. In verse 19, it says this, Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and honour him. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Too late. <laughs> it's too late. You've had your chances. And then it says, Achan replied, Achan replied, it is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I've done. When I saw the plunder with a beautiful robe uh, from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them. Oops, go back one, my bad. Uh, I coveted them and I took them. They are hidden in the ground under my tent with the silver underneath. Do you read in any of that repentance? Do you read confession? I just read, oh, got caught. All good. Got caught. Yeah, sorry about that, Joshua. Hey, let's go take the town, eh? Nope. It's an unrepentant stance. You see, Achan has stolen from God. The sanctity of the covenant people has been violated. He has lied, he has stolen, he has coveted. And it's interesting to note that there is no repentance. And after years of wandering, this is what's happened. You see, Achan had become dissatisfied with the way God had ordered the affairs of his life. His family was complicit in his action. They knew what was buried under their own tent and he had led them into disobedience. God is building a people, not just a person. His corruption, his sin, like a cancer, started to consume his entire family. He told them, don't worry, we'll hide this stuff here. And when we get over to the promised land, we will make a name for ourselves. We'll get a head start on everyone else. Isn't that funny? That kind of mode for emotional happiness is at other people's expense. We hear that a lot in Scripture, don't we? And we're challenged by it, but then hmm, we move on. The first chance we get, we're going to improve our situation. Achan had created an attachment, an idol in his heart that he believed would bring him happiness. It's because these little moments of dissatisfaction give birth to disobedience. This coveting led to covenant breaking. Let me illustrate it this way. Husband and wife have been married for a couple of years. A few little niggles have begun to set in here and there. He isn't quite as romantic as he used to be. 
Maybe she stopped paying him attention with compliments and, and has forgotten to do that every now and then. They're both tired. Maybe a few kids have come along and, and they've drawn out the last bits of energy that they have left for each other at the end of the day. And then all of a sudden, one day at work, a colleague starts paying him compliments and giving him the odd flirtatious look. His minor, and let me reassure you, normal dissatisfaction with life at that moment, if that moment of desire is left unchecked, it'll lead him into disobedience. It'll eventually give birth to disobedience to his marriage covenant and other things in his life. A moment of dissatisfaction, if left unchecked, will lead you and me into sin. The beautiful and God-given joy of his marriage could begin to slowly be eroded because he leaves it unchecked. There's a guy called James Montgomery Boyce and he has this great quote talking about the story of Joshua. He says, nothing will so quickly destroy a Christian's life as dissatisfaction with God's arrangements for him and her. (laughs) Which leads to lust for what God has not given yet or not yet given or has given to someone else. Dissatisfaction, that's all it takes. Dissatisfaction with God's arrangement for our lives begins as a minor niggle. Surely God wants me to be happy, to thrive and to flourish, to be healthy, to be in love. Aiken's story begs the question, what are you dissatisfied with at the moment? about your life? What are you coveting that is not yours? It's probably a better question. See, the thing that brought calamity upon Achan and his family was his belief that without some particular thing or person, you cannot be happy and enjoy a secure life. God was saying, I brought you out of Egypt. I had food fall from the sky. I am a God who is faithful to his covenant. So should you be. I am consistent in my character. See, the great paradox of Jesus' message is as long as you need life to go a certain way, to be happy and to be at peace, you will never be happy and at peace. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. Are you letting dissatisfaction lead you into disobedience this morning? Because dissatisfaction wasn't the sin. It was the nucleus that metastasized into the sin of disobedience. And a whole family were wiped out. Move on quickly because my last point. Sin has community consequences. Sin has community consequences. Over the past 10 to 20 years, we've seen the sad and painful um, demise of prominent Christian leaders and that hurt and the fallout that accompanies that as a church. It's not about just the leader. It's about the community surrounding each other and lifting each other up. We've seen greed rob families of community um, and community livelihoods broken, wounded people 
that see and, and covet and take what's not theirs. And God's people are to take a stand against that kind of oppression, especially when it comes from within. Because God can't stand sin. And this place is where he wants to grow and express his blessing through his people. And he can't do that if he's going like this. See, when Achan sinned, all of Israel felt its effect through the defeat and the loss at I. You see, 36 families, yeah, 36 families, not including his, lost sons, husbands, fathers and brothers because of one man and his family's disobedience. Sin has community consequences to marriages. Families fall apart. Children become disillusioned with faith. Businesses fail. Homes are lost. The ripples go deeper and further than we see. God is building a people, not just a person. And he's calling us into that as a community of faith and care. There's a reason why we put things in place. And I know some people have been a bit iffy about this, but there's a reason why we have police checks in the life of a community. I remember a couple of years ago um, being a senior pastor at a church and found out that there was a guy sitting among us and he's a good guy. Uh, He'd been in jail for 18 years for murder. There was someone else there who was with his third wife. There was someone else there who was... I had to keep a check on those people because if the dissatisfactions that had led them away in the past led them into disobedience there, the whole place would have been destroyed. There's a reason why we ask you to fill out a form whether or not you can be safe to be with our children. There's a reason why we, we, we're really tough on certain things, not because we're just grumpy people, but because God says, be really careful that your community continues to honour and care for God's people in a way that is honouring and His blessing can be poured out on that. I invite the band to come and I want to finish with this. And Alcoholics Anonymous, um, no, this isn't a confession. Uh, I'll be honest. (laughs) And Alcoholics Anonymous, they have this incredible line right at the top of their statement. And it says, it's for the fellowship of men and women who share their experience, their strength and hope with each other, that they may solve their common problem and help others recover. I love that. We, God's community, are called together to share our experience, lean on each other for strength, point to the hope of Jesus Christ. Yeah. That we may solve our common problem of sin together so that God's blessing can be upon his community to call us up into something more. And so this morning, as, as I close, I just want you to just take a moment. The team leads us in a minute in an incredible song. Make room. Be honest. Take a moment to confess before the Lord. Take a moment to totally surrender yourself again before God. Maybe consider what it might look like 
to fully engage, to be known within this community, to be held accountable and cared for and loved within this place. Let's stand for prayer. God, you are good. Lord, you are consistent from Genesis to Revelation. You love your people and you are the one that comes to us. You are the one that sets your faithfulness before us and says, believe in me. And this morning, there are those that are wrestling with something that's going on. Maybe we've allowed some dissatisfaction to metastasize into some sin. Lord, you are a good God who sent Jesus And by the power of His blood this morning, people can be set free. Those who have been captive for years, like addicts and others, Lord, You can come right now and in a moment transform that. So we invite You, Holy Spirit, come and do that which only You can do, that we may become a people blessed by You to be a blessing within our community. We ask this in Jesus' Name. Amen.